Farm Kids in Quarantine, a back to school challenge, and looking back on four decades of American agriculture. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at issues across the country as reported by our editors. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress, and if you hear noise in the background, my home studio is in the middle of an active construction zone. A longer break from school with restrictions on travel or, frankly, just getting out can have an impact on anyone. Recently, Holly Spangler, editor of Prairie Farmer, produced a series of profiles looking at what farm kids are doing while in quarantine. What she found is fascinating. She also shares some thoughts on the reopening of schools and the challenges that will bring. Then we turn our attention to a look back on a long career covering agriculture. Ron Smith is celebrating his last day of work today, August 7th, after 42 years with Farm Progress as part of the Farm Press team. His most recent position is editor of Delta Farm Press, and he talks about what's changed on the farm, from ways to work with farmers to how rural America is different than it once was. It's a fascinating conversation. First up, we talk quarantine, back to school, and a little farm kid creativity with Holly Spangler. We're catching up with Holly Spangler in Illinois. Um, Holly, good to talk to you today. I guess the place to start, from my standpoint, is the weather and how crops look where you are in Illinois. Absolutely. I tell you what, it is a beautiful day here in Illinois. I mean, it's kind of like a it feels like an early September day as opposed to an early August day and everything is green and people are mowing yards and mowing ditches and roadsides and everything else at a rate that we don't normally do this time of year, right? So the farmer I talked to the other day said, uh, if we're mowing, it's growing. So that's a good sign. Yeah, well, I think this cooler weather is great for grain fill too. So I think it is too. You can smell the corn pollinating out there. We're talking about a pretty serious subject here. You did a wonderful series recently online to, talking about kids in quarantine. And I guess I want to talk to you a little bit about that and what you picked up from that project. What came up from that series for you? Yeah, well, we were trying to kind of focus around that idea that, you know, a lot of kids have lost a lot of things that can't be replaced. A normal graduation, a prom, FFA conventions, you know, state and national. National is is going online as well this fall. Those are things that you just can't replace if you're a senior in high school or you're a freshman and it's your first time or whatever. And kids on down, you know, younger kids have lost a lot, too. But could we focus on the good stories that we've heard, too? Okay, so a lot has been lost, but a lot's also been gained. And and we talk to kids who have gotten to spend more time with their parents, you know, than they wouldn't have. Uh, Our young lady that's going to be on the cover is a 10-year-old little girl whose family, you know, lives more in town off the farm and loves, she loves to be on the farm. And so she got to go every day with her dad and talked about what that meant and what she learned. And now she notices things, you know, her dad says, you know, they drive down the road and she notices, well, that corn's bigger than ours, dad. And uh, things that she hadn't noticed before. Um, so definitely a, a bigger appreciation for ag while, while those kids are spending that time. I'm sure that dad really appreciated that comment, too. I'm just <laughs> exactly. You're right. I think it, it, they have lost so much. What other things did some of I mean, you've got this as your cover feature for September, but what, what are the uh, the attitudes about all this? Is this an, are parents looking at this as an oppor- a different kind of opportunity? Yeah, for sure. I mean, another young man we featured, his name is Ethan Pratt. His family farms near Dixon. Um, you know, Ethan is my son's age, so he's 15 years old, just finished his freshman year. And Ethan's a kid who'd rather be on a tractor than in a classroom anyway. Um, so this worked out great for him. But, you know, he talked about how he spent 
you know, he basically spent his spring on the field cultivator and he had not had the chance to do that to that degree before, you know, because he was in school. So he, you know, any any spring work he did was in the evening or on the weekends. And so he talked about how he got a greater appreciation for what it takes to get, you know, everything rolling in the spring and what a, a normal spring work day looks like. I suppose it is connecting these kids to the, the real life of the farm. You know, I think they kind of know what dad and mom do when they're at school, but to actually see it in action. That would be kind of an interesting education in itself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, and, and talk to other young people who, you know, maybe off in college, um, a young woman in nursing school who, um, you know, when the quarantine hit, she came home to the farm, you know, to, to quarantine there and finish her classes and, and do what she could and help dad fill the planner and all those kinds of things. The upside of that is that parents are getting some wonderful time with their kids on the farm, some really good bonding time. And I think maybe at times they didn't know they'd enjoy that, but I think they really are, which is cool. Absolutely. And it's a huge help. I mean, our kids being home got us through the end of calving, you know, in a lot of mud. And they really enjoyed that. And I'm being a little facetious there. A little bit. I get it. But I think they did enjoy it, though, in their own perverse way, I think. Right. Right. Yeah, they were fun. It was it was fun. You know, the other fun thing that we saw is the amount of creativity that kids were able to channel. You know, we talked to a young man who talked his mom into letting him start a YouTube channel. Right. And so now he's sharing videos from the farm of, of what they're doing and other families who did reading time, you know, with a kid who didn't really like to do reading time. But let's go out to the barn and, and read to your bottle calf. Um, and that made it more fun. You know, and, and other kids who just had crazy creative ideas you know we featured a video from a a young woman that we show cattle with who had this idea like let's you know there's there were some viral videos this winter or spring you know where people would slide something into the video and then slide it out the you know to the to the right and then paste all those clips together into a video well she had the idea what if we did that with a heifer and a show stick and we have all the kids around the state record one of those clips i'm getting a show stick tossed to them set their heifer up toss it out to the right and then they knit all those together and she put together a video and it looked fantastic in the end and it was so fun you know so just a high level of creativity and and ways to to be together when you can't be together Uh, someone who's getting reacquainted with video editing software is pretty amazing what you can do on your computer and these kids are a lot smarter at that than i'm ever going to be and (laughs) truly that's an interesting thing you know you you used an operative word earlier and that is education and part of the reason you got to spend quality time with your kids and everybody else was because school was closed now it's time for school to start up again and i you know i'm in minnesota we're looking at a blended model based on covid cases by county over a 14-day period um, so they can go full in blended or totally um, remote and that idea is that in outstate parts of Minnesota where there are low cases, these kids are going to go back to school. How's right. Illinois doing it or what are you hearing? Well, Illinois is very much on a school district by school district basis. Um, statewide, we are not allowed to gather in groups of more than 50 and will not be allowed to until either the governor you know, changes something about that or we get to the point that we have an effective vaccine, which could be quite some time. So the decision on, OK, so what does school look like? That falls to the individual school district. Um, to to figure out. And I was talking to a, a superintendent of a rural district who made the point, he's like, you know, we don't have some of the problems, you know, thanks to being a small school, an underpopulated school population, you know, in a, in a larger building that, you know, some of our more urban friends do, you know, we won't have 50 kids in the hallway right. <laughs> at, at a given time. And that, that works in our favor for once. So that's nice. But 
every every school district is trying to figure out the best look for them. You know, ours is doing you have the option of coming to school or the option of staying home um, and doing distance learning. Our school is meeting from eight to noon every day. Kids will all go home at lunch with a with, with a sack lunch in hand and then do any homework and distance learning or whatever in the afternoon. So and, and yet there are school districts around us who are, you know, doing a some kids come to school Monday, Thursday, the other half go Tuesday, Friday, everybody's virtual on Wednesday, and just trying to figure out what works best for them. Yeah, that's the program that my grandson will be in this year. He'll be either Monday, Thursday, or Tuesday, Friday, and then Wednesday's cleaning school day, I guess. Um, yes, and, yes. And then the virtual, and I'm not sure, we're not sure how that's going to work for virtual. Uh, be very interesting to see because virtual worked okay. I'm concerned about the kids we're leaving behind because there is no one learning thing. I mean, obviously, some kids have great language skills and self-driven to learn, and other kids are like, oh, this is hard, and I'm not getting the help I need. So right. it's a real challenge. Right, um, and it's hard to know what to do, right? So, you know, part of our school's model is that we could um, – you know, do more dual credit courses for our high schoolers in the afternoon, which is true, right? But we're also not sure how heavy the course load is going to be for those classes that they have in school. So it's just a, it's a balancing game and then trying to, to guess how we think this is all going to work out. And it's a lot for administrators to figure out and teachers and school boards and everybody else. Yeah, it also puts stresses in areas that uh, we're talking about, I mean, recently on television, actually CBS Sunday Morning did a story on broadband propagation. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of if there's one person in a census block that has broadband, they count that as having broadband access in the census block. The trouble is the census block where you live is probably 100 square miles. And the right. census block in Chicago's a block. It's, it's painting a false picture of broadband access in the country. Right. And the FCC is under pressure to fix that. They are saying, well, Congress didn't give us the money to do it, so we're not doing it. What frustrates me is, and I think the Farm Bureau just issued an op-ed today, we need to get our act around broadband because this socioeconomic experiment we're involved in with our children mm-hmm. is really requires that everybody have access to broadband. The REA model, the Rural Electrification Association model from the 30s may be the answer. We've talked Mm -hmm. about it for a decade, and I think that maybe this will be pushed forward. We'll see. How is broadband from where you are? I mean, in your part of the state of Illinois, it's kind of an interesting proposition. It is. It's dicey. It's dicey at best. You know, in our school last spring, because, you know, we're a lower income district, like a lot of rural districts, and and there were a lot of kids who didn't have, you know, internet access at home. You know, their policy last spring was, we are not going to teach anything new. We're just going to maintain, basically. So that way kids wouldn't fall behind, theoretically, if they didn't have internet access. Now, the solution for this fall is that the school is trying to solve that broadband problem, right? So they're offering portable Wi-Fi hotspots to families who need them, which is a wonderful service. And I Tip, tip of the hat to every school district that's doing that. But, you know, as you mentioned, in terms of, of Congress and, and making broadband more effective, this should not fall to the schools to solve, right? But here we are again, and the school's trying to solve that problem. They're trying to solve, you know, the nutrition problem uh, for lunches and breakfasts, and it's just a lot back on the school. Well, a lot of this has fallen on USDA, you know, the school lunch programs in USDA. Mm-hmm. They're doing everything they can. They've got the food box program trying to help in that area. And frankly, USDA World Development is totally involved with the broadband question. And they're trying to do a job, too. And it's 
uh, the interesting thing that I've heard in this story that was ran last weekend, and people can look this up at cbssundaymorning.com, a lot of money was spent in the last decade and no one knows where it went. Right. There's no accounting of where it went because over a billion dollars has been put into broadband propagation and it still looks terrible on the map and it's just right. Kind of, um, right. upsetting to me. And right. the the other thing is it's great to talk about broadband, but how many of the kids in your in your school district or in any school district that's a lower income or smaller school district, how many of those kids have laptops or tablets that they can do their yep. work on? That was our other problem. We do not have one-to-one technology at our school. There are, there are rural schools around us who do. We just do not. And so they are now getting set up to provide Chromebooks, you know, for anybody who, who needs them. Um, so we will be one-to-one now, but we, you know, that was not the plan originally. Where did that money come from? I mean, that's the other issue. Uh, schools are already stressed. Where are they getting the right. money for that? That's a good question, and I would need to look into that a little more. And, and part of, you know, our kids had access to a Chromebook at school. They just were not set up to send those home with every single kid okay. last spring. So it may have been, you know, just we have to augment that a little bit to get them to everybody this year. And that's probably what's happening. I mean, Chromebooks, a couple hundred bucks, you got a computer. And that right. really, they are good, reliable machines, and they have long battery life. They're excellent machines. That's good. Um, the other picture on that is watching what does a school do if they start to see kids slip it's a solid question you know and and i know like teachers are teachers are working so hard to put together plans for in-person classrooms and virtual classrooms and we don't know what right to try and meet all these needs and i know they're so concerned about those kids so a lot of that will come down to i'm sure teachers you know really tracking hard on okay i haven't heard from this student this week or this day or you know i'm seeing their grades coming down and, and now how do we address that and the yeah. other side of it is when you're in class there's a risk for that teacher to go into that classroom with COVID. Mm-hmm. i mean that's the part we Right. What was it? Somebody right. told me the other day. Everybody thought the homeschooling was a great idea until they had to do it. <laughs> right. Well, and the and the staffing situation in a rural school in a rural area is such that okay, you know, we saw COVID sweep through as district. I don't know. There are about three districts north of us um, here, and it was kind of a wake up call. Okay, so if your school board and your superintendent and your principal and half your staff come down with COVID at the same time. Who is going to teach? Because, you know, who our substitutes are, are really lovely retired people, you know, in our communities or stay at home moms. You know what I mean? That, that have been, And who maybe can't do that now. So uh, the staff's going to be the real problem. You know, we had we had a f- just influenza A and B. And I don't say just, but, you know, yeah, was that was bad, too. That, ripped right that was through bad. School. Yeah. yeah, it ran through our school in January to the point we had to shut down school for two days. Yeah, and I remember that. part of that was, yeah, there were a lot of kids sick, but there was a lot of staff sick. We could not we could not operate a school. And and you just can't underestimate how many, um, you know, one on one aides there are uh, paraprofessionals, you know, for kids with IEPs. And that, that's just a lot of people. It's a lot of people that, that is required just to put on school for a day. I appreciate your perspective on this. Um, I think that going forward, we'll be looking at rural education in new ways, even in farm progress and our brands, mm-hmm. because I think it's something that we should be covering as we look at, again, this socioeconomic experiment we're running. Good luck right. to your kids in school this fall when it starts. And uh, it's been great to talk to you, Holly Spangler with Prairie Farmer. Um, have a good time. And uh, we'll be, uh, I'm going to be look forward to doing some more work with you at the Farm Progress virtual experience as well. That's right. Before we know it. (laughs) Take care. Thanks to Holly for that insight and her work on sharing the stories of those kids on the farm. Now we turn our attention to the end of a career covering agriculture. 
In the last 40 years, this industry has undergone tremendous change, and Ron Smith has been along for the ride. He shares stories of what he's seen and more, so let's check in with Ron. Well, Ron Smith, it's it's good to be catching up with you, but I believe, I know you're editor of Delta Farm Press, but I believe this will be the last time I'll be catching up with you at Delta Farm Press with the Around Farm Progress podcast, because uh, you're retiring. Tomorrow's my last day, but who's counting the days? <laughs> You are. I'm thinking. Are you down to hours now? Is that how that works? Never mind. Well, you know, I, actually, I told my wife yesterday. I said, yeah, I felt a little anxious this week at a time or two because, uh, you know, it's, it's it's kind of a new world. It'll be the first time in 45 years that I wake up on Monday morning unemployed. <laughs> yeah. Now you've been with Farm Press about 42 years. Yeah, 1978. Left for left for 18 months and, uh, and did some work with a public relations company and then came back. I know how that goes. Uh, <laughs> that's for sure. So, you know, as you're as you're looking at retiring and leaving Delta Farm Press, we ran a wonderful piece online, which I will link to in the write up for this podcast. Uh, that kind of, you know, shows that a lot of people did respect the work that you did for us, and we really appreciate that. And I want to get past that a little bit. Uh, you've got 42 years of being in the country, being in the field, as it were, with a lot of different people in the industry and on the farm. What's the overriding thing that you've seen that's changed over the last 42 years? How do you look back on where you started and where you are? And- there, you know, there's, there's several things. I, oh, one of them is that uh, farmers are so much more productive now than they were 40 years ago. Uh, yields are much higher. Cotton, corn, soybeans, everything, because I think of technology. The changes in technology, I think, may be the biggest, biggest thing I've seen in 40 years. You know, when I started, you know, the GPS was was a dream. And the the traits and, and varieties, uh, you know, they didn't exist. They, they were still dependent on, all, you know, all manner of chemicals just to uh, to get a crop from uh, from out of the ground to harvest. Uh, it was ex- extremely expensive, time-consuming, labor-intensive. And I think that's probably one of the one of the one of the biggest thing. Harvest equipment is so much more efficient than it used to be. And since I started, I've always worked a lot with with cotton. And I think the cotton industry has been one of one of the biggest changes. And that this just several things happened with with cotton. Uh, bow weave eradication was one of the biggest one. That is really no longer uh, an economic pest, except one little spot in the lower Rio Grande Valley of Texas. And when they got rid of that, they added uh, anywhere from two to 300 pounds per acre to cotton. But then they had the, the, the traits and the better varieties in cotton that, uh, uh, you know, irrigated cotton now, it's, it's not at all unusual to get four bales an acre. When, when I first started, very few people were irrigating. Uh, they just thought that, you know, uh, cotton was a dry land crop and, you know, you didn't need to. They were struggling along hoping to make a bale an acre. A bale an acre now is just, uh, is barely profitable. And that has to be completely dry land where the, where the inputs are a lot less. So that, that has been a major change. In it. And just the communication is just incredibly different than it was 40 years ago. Well, yeah, you would work with farmers. How would you, I mean, it was a phone call. Yeah. Um, if you did a checking copy with a farmer, how'd you get it to him? <laughs> I would call, often I'd call and read it to him. And, you know, we, we were on, a, uh, at, I was I started out with Southeast Farm Press and we were on a weekly schedule. We published every week. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I was usually out Monday, Tuesday and, you know, get back sometime Wednesday afternoon and then Thursday and Friday I was writing. So we didn't have time 
to uh, to mail a copy and get it get it back. So it was basically read it and say, hey, you know, just I'm gonna read this to you slowly. Stop me when you need need me to change something. And uh, you know, they were always willing to do that. Usually I had to call them at night because they were they were all busy during the day and they didn't have cell phones. Call them at noon or you call them at night. That was the way yeah. it was. Yeah. Absolutely. That was also back when farmers would go home for lunch. They did. Yes. Which was always a good time, you know, to, to visit a farmer, you know, get there about 10 o'clock in the morning and they say, hey, why don't you stay for lunch? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I've heard that story from other editors, too. The <laughs> the cheap trick for a free meal. And actually, I've done it myself in the past as well. Or and nowadays, if we're with a farmer, we will take them to lunch. So it's a yeah. little, that's the change, too. Right. I mean, yeah. we would be on a farm. And if you're there at 10 in the morning and it's about 1130, I know that, uh, hey, how about we go into town and grab a sandwich? And they'd be all up for that. That's a big change. Yeah, there were a few times they say, hey, you know, you're going to be there's, there's not much place to stay around here. Y'all just stay with me. And, you know, you, you see, you'll spend the night on a farm and, you know, get up and you get a good breakfast and, you, you know, you're on about your business. You know, that's one thing that hasn't changed a lot about farmers. They are still so hospitable. Uh, you know, they're welcoming you into your into their house. You know, you sit around a kitchen table doing uh, doing interviews and they'll bring you coffee and uh, uh, a banana bread or, or muffins or whatever. And they are they're just the most hospitable people in the world. Absolutely. Although uh, nowadays we can't sit around that kitchen table. That's probably the biggest change for you in just the last four months. Yeah, that's true. You know, I have been on one farm since uh, the middle of February, and that was uh, that was one really close to uh, where I live in northeast Tennessee. And it was, you know, late spring, and I said, okay, I want to get out and, and see if I can find somebody still planting soybeans just to get some, if nothing else, just to get some uh, late-season planting pictures. So the day I get on the farm, he's baling hay. But it was a beautiful day. He had a beautiful field of hay. You know, there was a blue sky, a little little uh, puffy white clouds that was a beautiful backdrop so i got some really good pictures and you know he stopped uh, baiting long enough to talk to me a little bit about uh, growing corn and soybeans and uh and hay and raising cattle got a good interview so it was uh it was refreshing and you know as well as i do that occasionally you need to do that just to get recharged after you sit in your office for a long time you just get kind of stale and say you know i need i need to go talk to the people that i do this for yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of our jobs is to be out with them. But that brings up an interesting question. You know, you talk about technology now. It's easy to email a story to a guy. You can read it on his phone. You uh, can call them anytime. They usually answer their phone. Or if they don't, they call back pretty quickly. You can text them and get their attention. That always works. But let's talk about the one thing that I think people listening to this podcast who aren't from cotton country don't understand. We've changed the way we, we harvest cotton. Oh, yeah. It's, it's really changed, uh, I would say, at least twice okay. since, since, I, since I've been in, in the business. You know, at one time, you know, they, they harvested the cotton put it in put it in a wagon and hauled it to the gin and you know just just loosen the wagon oh wow uh, when they invented the the module builder uh that changed the uh, cotton harvest tremendously because they you know in in the field they basically press this huge bale uh and then they load that bale on the on the on the trucks and take it to the gin where they mm-hmm. where they tear it apart and start the ginning process well, you know, and now they have these harvesters that bail, you know, on the run. Uh, they just pop these bales out like a large, uh, large bale uh, hay baler. And you know, you go in with a with a, uh, a forklift or a, a, a prong on, on on a tractor, and you pick it up and you put it on a truck and you take it to the gym. 
is probably three or four people that, and, and two or three pieces of equipment that they no longer need. Uh, they, don't, they don't need the, the, the bow buggies, the, um, the module builder, and the people that, uh, that are required to, uh, to put the pack well, like, down yeah. in the module builder and then move it. Well, it was like a cotton train. When you were heading to the field, it would be a couple of pickers, uh, two or three bull buggies, a module builder. They needed maybe a tractor for whatever reason. And so all this equipment would be running down a highway <laughs> to get to a cotton field. And today, it's one picker. It is. One guy or gal that can run mm-hmm. that picker. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the interesting thing is you can carry the cotton bale on the back of that picker before you drop it. So yeah. you can you can align where you drop them to reduce the compaction of running the tractor later to go pick them up. Well, they also have found that, you know, if they if they get them over to the the edge of the field, right. uh, they get them away from those those cotton stalks, which will poke holes into the into the plastic that the bale is wrapped in. And that plastic gets pushed into, into the bale and, and creates contamination all the way down the line until you get to uh, to, to spinning and actually weaving a shirt or a pair of pants or, or uh, bedding. They're learning a lot about how to still how to use these uh, these bales and, and, the, and the plastic wrap, but it is so much more efficient and uh, less time consuming, saves energy. There's just all kinds of advantages to it. It's it's been a uh, really a revolution. It's changing the labor nature, and I think that's changing rural America too. Have you noticed that? I mean, there's less jobs on the farm. Are there less jobs in town? Uh, well, there there's less town. Uh, you know, you you go down a main street and uh, just just about anywhere in the mid south, or I used to notice a lot in the high plains of uh, of Texas. A lot of little towns that used to uh, thrive on agriculture, there would be a couple of uh, uh, farm equipment dealers. There would be a you know a, a feed and seed company, uh, you know maybe an elevator. You know just the regular businesses that all small towns would have. There would be a, a an automobile dealer, a dry goods store. You know a small, often just a mom and pop grocery, a drugstore. Many of those uh, those buildings are just boarded up. Uh, sometimes you know it's hard, but you know looking for a place to stop and eat on the way from uh, Dallas to Lubbock or Amarillo. And I, I did have a few favorite places that I'd always just kind of time my trip so I could I could stop there. But uh, they were few and far between. You had you had to make a plan. Further nature of the change of, of rural America, and I think that we we may see more residents back in rural America because living in town is kind of a challenge lately. But uh, <laughs> It's, I don't see that happening for very long unless rural America gets better broadband, which I discussed with Holly earlier, Holly Spangler earlier in this podcast, that that's the other issue is that rural America is being left behind because it doesn't, it isn't connected to the internet. Farmers need that. I mean, you know, you talk about the technology, the very concept that a farmer could run a, a piece of equipment and it knows where it's been and it tracks what it's done and it saves it to the cloud. So later I can analyze what it's done. These are foreign concepts to uh, journalists trying to write about technology. I think I, I did an interview with a farmer yesterday that we'll use in the uh, in the production guide, and uh, he was talking about uh, the way that he he uses data and how that has changed. He said he even when he had a computer that he would keep a lot of records in uh, on the dash of his pickup, which you know this that's the uh, you know farmer's filing cabinet for years, and he would he'd bring it back in and he'd say, okay, I'm gonna do this every day and log in the and the information, but he never did. And you know, it'd be he'd be several weeks, and then he was trying to put in put in a month's worth of, of data. Well, you know, new programs. You know, after you get it set up, uh, it's there. 
you yeah. just go on the computer and you just you just punch a button and you find out what you need and uh, and it, it tells you what your you know what your yields are or what your seeding rate was or, or how much chemical you put out where but you're right you know in some places they are limited with what, what they can use because they don't have broadband right when you bring up the point he's you gather all that as planted information and then when you start rolling it into other programs that are modeling your crop and can tell you when this field will need fungicide yeah. or when you should turn on the irrigation pivot in that field the hardest part at the beginning like you say was I am never going to enter it from the seed book into this computer. Right. It's got to be automatic. We need an easy button for moving what I do into something I can analyze with. And then the analysis has to be simple, and that's happened too. I can just open up a screen, and it's already done all the work for me, right? It's right. going to tell me where I am. And then I use my trusted advisor, my agronomist, to say, Fred, there's a problem. What's going on in this in field 2613? And I'll show you the screen, and, or I'll show you the state, and you tell me what you see. And, and before, Fred would have to come out, wander the field, and today, Fred can look at aerial imagery and the as planted information, and he may still go out because he may identify an area he really needs to look at. But I think when we think about agriculture, just think about that from a standpoint of trying to make decisions. And, you know, we talked about production improvements over the last 40 years. Well, this isn't going to hurt. No, no. Well, and you take a picture of a plant and uh, send it into a, to a pathologist and say, hey, what's wrong with this? Yeah. Or, you know, your, your equipment dealer with computerized technology says, okay, this is what's wrong with this this piece of equipment. You know, we'll we'll send somebody out with the right part. They'll even call you if it's about to break down before yeah. it does. Yeah. So yeah, that's cool stuff. Well, Ron Smith, soon to be the former editor of Delta Farm Press and longtime Farm Press valued reporter. Congratulations on a successful career with us here at what is now Farm Progress. And we all know it's been several different owners over the last 42 years. We wish you a lot of luck. We know uh, that we'll still be seeing your byline from time to time in the Farm Press and other Farm Progress publications. But good luck to you and enjoy being unemployed. Thank you, Willie. I, you know, w one last time, I have thoroughly enjoyed my work and the, and, and the people and colleagues like you and Brad and, and so many others that I can't even, can't even mention because I don't have time. It has been a joy. It was great to catch up with Holly Spangler at Prairie Farmer and reminisce with Ron Smith of Delta Farm Press. Thanks to both of you for joining me today. Around Farm Progress is our newest podcast looking at agriculture with the help of our national editorial team. But we have other podcasts you'll want to check out. The best way to find them is to visit farmprogress.com forward slash farm hyphen progress hyphen podcasts. Give them a listen. And we continue our in-depth coverage of all things regarding COVID-19 at farmprogress.com forward slash coronavirus. You've been listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly look at agriculture across the United States with editors from the Farm Progress team. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional magazines, as well as farm futures, beef, National Hog Farmer and Feedstuffs, and of course the Farm Progress Show and Husker Harvest Days, which this year have been replaced by the Farm Progress Virtual Experience. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vode, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening. <music>